Good morning, everybody. I, I uh, selfishly ask or say good morning because I selfishly want you to say good morning back. So, good morning. Awesome. Okay. Well, after the pine size, I'm like, I'm supposed to teach after after that. Uh, what a wonderful opportunity for us to support our families and children. So, encourage you to participate in that. Again, as Pastor Don said, my name is Prentice Park. Uh, I am the lead pastor at Bethany West Seattle. Uh, before that, I was on staff here, and then they shipped me out uh, to West Seattle, which is uh, the place I call home. And so oftentimes when I come back, uh, I feel like it's a little bit of a homecoming. And so uh, after service, I would love to say hi to you and uh, reconnect. Uh, also, it's a privilege always to be here. Uh, pastor Richard uh, has been sick Man, he, will you pray with me for our, our pastor? Uh, for the last several weeks, he went to Malibu uh, to speak at a conference, came back, had to go back to speak at another conference. Uh, and then for a week, he had to kind of deal with uh, some of the staff uh, at a retreat, and he led us there. And just a, it was just a few days ago uh, where he was talking, and he just could not, he literally could not talk anymore. He, his voice was out. Uh, and so, again, um, if you remember, be praying for our pastor uh, as he heals. Um, but I get to be here instead, uh, continuing this series uh, called Found, uh, discovering our, our true identity in Christ. And since you've been here every single Sunday, you know uh, that we have been through the book of Ephesians. Uh, and, and I'm excited for us to go through chapter, chapter 3 because what we find in chapter 3 uh, are several movements. And, and movements that I would say is important for even our lives, even today. As a matter of fact, more than ever today than, than really ever before. I mean, we see movements from, from darkness to light, from, from sick to healing, uh, from pain and sorrow to joy and, and hope. We see these movements in Ephesians chapter 3. And, and I may not know every single person sitting in the pews today, but I bet some of us need that message. That through uh, knowing and in Jesus Christ, that we can also experience this movement from darkness to light, from hopelessness to hope, to despair to joy, sickness and healing. And, and so the movements that we see in Ephesians chapter 3 uh, look like this. The first point is uh, it's, a, it's a movement from mystery to revelation. Secondly, there's a movement uh, from the slums to the sea. And if you're a C.S. Lewis fan, you know what I'm talking about. And, and thirdly, a movement from just pure information to intimacy. So, so mystery to revelation, slum to sea, and information to intimacy. Let me pray for our time. God, thank you that we get to be here together as a community to just wrestle with even the hard uh, aspects of our lives together. Knowing that you call us and prepare us and equip us uh, to enter into a movement. And many of us, we need to move from one space, from the space that we are to another to experience true hope and transformation that only you can offer us. We thank you for being that living hope in our lives. In your name we pray, 
Amen. Uh, so a couple summers ago, I had the privilege to go to Rwanda uh, on a trip that was hosted by Bethany. Uh, and I went with several, there's a few people even in this auditorium, in, in the sanctuary that I went with. Uh, and it was, a, it was a trip that changed my life. And, and not only has it changed my life, but will forever and ever inform the way I pastor. And, you know, just a kind of a shameless plug, if you are interested in participating in an international mission trip, please talk to somebody on staff here. There's plenty of opportunities. And I'll tell you what, I'll be the first one to say that when I came back from Rwanda, uh, the way I viewed the scriptures, the way I viewed God, it was completely different. But I will say, to be very honest, before going to Rwanda, I knew very little of what I was getting myself into. Uh, I mean, uh, I knew there was a genocide, which was heartbreaking uh, and, and devastating even to the people there, but I it wasn't really visceral to me. And, and I remember uh, watching the movie Hotel Rwanda, for some, a lot of us, we, we've watched that movie before, uh, but it wasn't until I actually went to the country, talked with the people, built relationships, and, and heard stories where everything started to change, I mean, in 1994 is when this, this Rwandan genocide happened. And for a lot of us in this room, we were, we were alive. We, we knew exactly uh, where we were, or we remember the year 1994. Some of us are a great year. Some of us were awkward years. Uh, some of us were glad that it's over. But we remember even that time. It wasn't in this archaic history book. It was something that happened just a few years before 9-11. And I remember I reading, I read a couple of books before leaving, but I'll tell you what, uh, it was this conversation that changed everything. And in order for you to truly grasp and understand this conversation that I had with a local, as a matter of fact, our, our driver, the one that drove us around who spoke English, and so I was able to ask him questions and we were, able, we were able to converse. But in order for us to really understand the gravity of that conversation, uh, I really want us to share in this knowledge of what happened in Rwanda. And just, just real briefly, uh, you may not know, but approximately one million, one million people were killed, massacred from one tribe to another. One million. That's, that's the population of, of Seattle, of Everett, and of Renton combined and what is even more astonishing is that one million people were massacred from one tribe to the other within 100 days. That's just over three months. And by the way, these tribes that were divided, Hutus and Tutsis, were one group to begin with. There were Rwandans, but they were split into one group or the other based on their social status their economic class, their physical features. Uh, and, and prior to leading up to the genocide, the colonizers, the, the Belgians at the time, and I remember going to the museums, genocide museum, when I was in Rwanda, and saw actual pictures that were taken, that were taken during the time where the, the Belgian leader, one of the leaders, would be literally sitting in a chair while these Rwandans are in a line. They're in a line going up to the person, and this person would have literally a measuring tape. 
and measure the features of their face or nose or head, uh, their bodies or whatever it is. And based off of that, along with how much cattle they owned, uh, how much money they had, how much possessions they had, they would be either a Hutu or a Tutsi. They were placed into categories uh, or, or tribes that they never asked to be in in the first place. And after all that tension, as you can imagine, there was division, there was hurt, there was pain, and suddenly one tribe to the other uh, were brainwashed to believe that this was the way to go. Family members of different tribes would kill one another, their own family members, based on their tribal affiliation. Neighbors and friends would turn on each other. Pastors and leaders would be, become perpetrators uh, in order to keep their own lives by killing the opposing tribal person. One story that really broke my heart is understanding that there were pastors and church leaders that would invite the, the people that were being killed into their church for a safe haven, for safety. When the reality is, what happened was you'd gather all of those people and he would lock the doors and light the church on fire to kill those people. And I know that this morning, that seems like a bit of a, a, a morbid start, uh, but I hope it actually does stir up a sense of, of despair and sadness uh, of this atrocity, of this injustice. I hope that it does. But it was in that backdrop that I was talking to our driver. And when we're sitting, I'll, I'll never forget it. We were upstairs, just kind of in the patio. Uh, it was at night, and he was, and here was a rule. He was a rule. The rule was you don't talk to the locals about the genocide. It's just you, you don't do that. You don't even mention the word Hutus and Tutsis. Like, you, you don't do it. It's disrespectful, and it's shameful, and you don't do it. And yet our driver opened up to me and started kind of sharing with me his story. And in that backdrop, he said, at 13 years old, I saw my, my dad and two brothers get killed right in front of me at 13 years old. And I'll, obviously, I'll save you the details, but he was telling me how it happened and where he was. All because they were part of a tribe, again, that they never asked to be a part of in the first place. And what will hit me the hardest as part of that conversation is that there was this movement that I saw from our driver from when he was telling me about that Rwandan history, about his family, about his, mom, or his dad and his two brothers. It was a sense of despair and sorrow and brokenness. And suddenly his, his whole demeanor changed. There was a movement uh, from despair to, to, I would say, joy and to hope. He said, you know what? But the joyful part of this, and I'll never forget this, he says, but now I'm happy because in Rwanda, there are no longer Hutus, there are no longer Tutsis, there are only Rwandans. And he said, you know what, Prentice? And I forgive them. He says, I forgive the perpetrators. I forgive the people that killed my family. And I remember him stamping. It was almost like a stamp. He said, he said, because of Jesus. Simply, because of Jesus. And, and I'll be honest with you. I'm sitting here. I'm listening to this. And I'm like, uh, what? Are you kidding me? Like, how could you 
How, how could you? I mean, I can never be in that position, but I can't imagine myself being so forgiving, so, so gracious and generous with, with forgiveness. I mean, that's a radical forgiveness. And I thought to myself, if anybody had a reason not to believe in God and a higher power at that, if anyone had a reason to give up hope due to his circumstances, he lived the genocide where one million people were, were killed, including his family members, in 100 days. He saw it as a 13-year-old boy. If anyone has a reason to give up hope, it was this man. If anyone had a reason to be filled and remain bitter in anger and even be filled with hatred and resentment, it was this man. And yet he believed, he, he believed that even in the midst of, of him being part of this story, that it wasn't the end of the story. That though this happened, as tragic and atrocious as it was, that this was not the end of his story. I don't know about you, but for many of us, if that happened to me, if I was part of that, I would say, that's it. This is where I'm going to live. This is going to be uh, what dictates my attitude. This is going to be what determines how I treat people and how I act, how I behave. This is it. And this driver said, you know what? Because of Jesus, I'm going to essentially move. I'm going to, I'm going to shift from that space to this new and profound space of radical generosity, radical forgiveness, and radical hope. There's this movement that he found in and through Jesus. And what Paul is saying in Ephesians chapter 3 is this. Through the power and mercies of God, the same God who resurrected Jesus on the third day, the same God who could bring a sense of miraculous reconciliation in an impossible situation and even lead my friend, the driver, to radical kind of forgiveness and kindness is the God who breaks down those walls who reconciles any people group, the one who brings life into where there's death, light into where there's darkness and hope into places of deep, deep despair and hopelessness. Paul saying this God that reconciled this country uh, who, had, who had given this person radical forgiveness is the same God that breaks down barriers even then, even now, even tomorrow. And this God is for you. This God is for you and is with you. And I'm going to say something so simple and so elementary, but I want you to hear this, that God is deeply and profoundly in love with you. And some of us this morning, as we, as we walk in, we, need, we needed to hear that. That something so simple can be so profound. And, and I would say if there's nothing else, if there's absolutely nothing else, you hear this morning, you hear this, that you are deeply and profoundly in, uh, loved by God. So most we need to inhale that and just let it soak. Because it's that love that creates this movement. And the movement that we see right away in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 5 through 6, is this, is this movement from mystery to revelation. Let me just put it this way. Here's what Paul says. No one knew about this mystery until God's Spirit told it to his holy apostles and prophets. And the mystery is this. Listen carefully. The mystery is this. 
Because of Christ Jesus, the good news has uh, given the Gentiles a share in the promises that God gave to the Jews. God has also let the Gentiles be part of the same body. So when we talk about this idea of mystery, we have to kind of extrapolate it and not think of it as the way we would define mystery. This idea of mystery is something that can't be known is, what, is kind of what we have developed. Mystery is something we, we don't know. It's a secret. It can't be known. Uh, I mean, for those of you that are like me, we love like mystery shows, right? I mean, when uh, these mystery documentaries came out I, on Netflix, I'm, I, I've seen them all. Uh, my favorite being uh, How to Make a Murderer. And I know this keeps getting more joyful and joyful, right? But that's one of the, the documentaries I love to see. As a matter of fact, I still follow it today because it's still unfolding because there's a mystery that can't be solved. And, and yet here, that's not the kind of mystery that Paul's talking about. As a matter of fact, that's not the mystery that the Bible ever talks about. Uh, the word mystery, where we get the word mystery, is this Greek word mysterion. And a better definition of mysterion is not just mystery, uh, but it has to be attached to the divine. So a better translation of mysterion is not just mystery, but it's the divine mystery. And and all over the scripture it says that God, the divine, has given us the mystery, and and not just a mystery or a secret or something to be unfolded, but God gave us the answer to the mystery, And the mystery, what Paul is saying, is that though this sounds very simple to us, it was very profound to them that the Gentiles were also in. That the Gentiles, not just the Jews, but Gentiles, those that aren't Jews, are also part of God's salvific plan. They're also invited to be part of this community that they can also experience not just life here, but life, uh, life ever after, and not just regular life, but life on life, abundant life, also like the Jews. The biggest difference is uh, what, what Paul is saying is that now everybody, here's the mystery, A, Gentiles, you're in. Jews, get over it, essentially. And lastly, now everybody, because of that mystery, because of that revelation, because no longer is that a mystery, it's a revelation, everybody is on the same playing ground. Everyone is equal to one another. But here's the fascinating part. What, what, what Paul is saying is, but the, the requirements, if you will, or the prerequisites, if you will, have changed. It, it used to be you have to belong to a nation. It used to be uh, there's, a, there's a Torah, there's these commandments that you have to follow, there's these laws and, and rituals, there's a sacrifice, there's things that once was in place in order for you to be in. Now what, what ultimately the gospel is saying is, guess what? Here's a mystery for you that's been revealed. Everybody has an opportunity to be in. And everybody now is on the same playing field. And this radical kingdom that God offers is now very much flipped upside down. It looks very, very different. It says, now you must not seek victory, but you must actually surrender. This was, this was radical. People didn't want to hear that, especially in this ancient Greco-Roman world. Being rich was no longer the name of the game. It was, it was the poor that actually God honored. It's the last that would actually be first and the first that will actually be last. It is through a death of yourself where you actually experience new life. 
It's this radical and upside down way of, of thinking and knowing and embracing the living God. And in turn, it radically changes the way we live and, and treat others and the way we actually view ourselves. And, and I, would say, I would say this, until we understand and embrace this upside down kingdom that we must surrender, no longer is life about achieving and doing and gathering uh, and gaining wealth and possession. No longer is life about that. Though that was the message, no longer is life about that. It's actually about the opposite. And what essentially all of the gospels, what they're saying is, if you want to experience life, true life and transformation and hope, everybody is invited. But B, everybody has to live by this upside down way of thinking. And until we understand and embrace this upside-down way kingdom, we'll always find our identity confusing and essentially a mystery. Why? Because what happens is that our identity, if it's not based on this upside-down kingdom, the way that God wants us to live, our identity becomes dependent. Our identity becomes dependent. And here's the deal. When our identity becomes dependent, our fulfillment becomes fluid. Let me say that again because I feel like we live this. We do this. We experience this. When our identity becomes dependent, when our identity becomes not on who God says we are, but on things that we just magically build, it's on, how, it's on upward mobility, it's on my wealth, it's on my marital status, it's on what my children do, it's in what kind of college I go into, what kind of job that I have. If our identity is purely based on the things that we can gather, and if our fulfillment is based off of that, our, our Really, our, our identity and our fulfillment will be fluid. Some days it'll be up, some days it'll be down, some days it'll be confusing, it'll be great, it'll be bad, it'll be fluid. Because the foundation is not strong. Because the reality is this, it's, not, it's no wonder that, and I'll, and I'll say this loud and clear, it's no wonder that not if, okay, not if, but when we fail to meet these conditions of the things that bring us fulfillment. Again, whether, whether it's money, fame, status, relationship, whatever it is, if those are the things that bring us ultimate satisfaction and fulfillment, there will be a day. There will be a day when, you, when that's not enough when you don't achieve enough, when you, when you don't do enough, when you fail, when you get laid off, when you get fired, when you break up, whatever it is, there'll be a day when what you have is not enough. And so it's no wonder that we are in a culture and society where we just want to cope. When, when things are not enough, when we don't feel fulfilled or satisfied or joyful out of fear and anxiety and desperation, we go to any measure to find that fulfillment, we'll pop a pill, we'll take, we'll, we'll take a drink. We become workaholics. We make unhealthy relationship decisions. Some of us, we swipe left or swipe right. Some of you guys, some generations will know what I mean by that. <laughs> because we'd rather find ways to cope with our lack of fulfillment due to us not understanding the mystery that God has shared with us. Because of that, we'd rather find ways to cope 
than to find ways to be complete. It's way easier to cope. We all know this. You're right. It's easier to take a drink. It's easier to take a pill. It's easier to find unhealthy relationships. It's easier just to be focused on my work and be a workaholic. It's much easier to cope in that way than to find ways to be complete. And what the message here and what we read this morning with with Pastor Don is that there's so much more to life than what we think brings us fulfillment. It's not just your job. It's not just your status. It's not just your marital, whatever it is. There's so much more for you and for me and for us as a church. And the mystery has been revealed to you that A, you are deeply and profoundly loved. And so then the movement from, from this mystery to revelation is this. Now you, don't have to, now you don't have to keep living as if you have to achieve everything. Do everything. Yeah, the secret is out. You don't have to keep pursuing. You don't have to keep achieving. You don't have to be good enough. You don't have to be afraid of failing. That's exhausting. Just receive. And the question is, are you, are you pursuing uh, this temporary satisfaction? Are you just coping? Are you coping? Because you have not understood the mystery that God wants to give to us. And the mystery is this, that you're in. God loves you deeply and profoundly. But what you have to do is live this upside-down kingdom where you surrender. And you live a life only and solely pursuing Christ. Because anything outside of that will just leave you empty. may not be today, may not be tomorrow, but eventually you will feel empty because there's so much more, so much more that we can't even ask for, that we can't even think to imagine in our lives that God wants for us and wants to do in us. God wants to move us from the slums to the sea. And you may not know this, but for many of us, we're living in the slums, this metaphorical slum. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20 and 21, it says this. I'll read, we read this morning. It says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. I don't know if you guys are C.S. Lewis fans, but I am. If you go to Bethany, it's kind of a prerequisite. Uh, that and, of course, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, if you haven't heard his name yet, you, you will many times. Uh, but in this book called The Weight of Glory, and this is where I get this phrase from the, from the slums to the sea, he says this that really relates well to Ephesians chapter 3. C.S. Lewis says this, and you can even read along with me. It says, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong. Sometimes we we feel like, well, I'll read it. It, Not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are too, we are far too easily pleased. 
What C.S. Lewis is saying, even then, is still so much applicable to us, even today. Because we haven't understood this movement from mystery to revelation, we live in this mystery where we mysteriously think that in ways to be fulfilled, it has to be living in this box. There's nothing more. I have to achieve, I have to wake up, go to work, make money, eat, go to sleep, and it's a cycle on repeat and repeat. I have to get into the best college. I have to impress people with all my possessions. I have to keep up with the Jones. What, whatever that might be, we feel like if I want to know who I am, if, we, if I want fulfillment, that's what I need to do. The problem is God wants so much more than that from you and for you. And yet we become pouty sometimes. No, I'm only going to be happy if I get what I want. And what I want is this list. And what God is saying, that list, that list is pathetic. I got something more than you can ask, more than you can imagine. So, so throw that list away because I got something better for you. And for some of us, we're so stubborn, we can't actually grasp that. We don't actually live by that. And what C.S. Lewis is saying is correct. We're sitting here playing in the slums, making mud pies, when God is saying, what are you doing? I got so much, something so much better for you over there. Get up, let's go. And many of us are like, no, this is good. This is, this is where I'm at. This is what I want to do. And it's no wonder we find ways to cope because to be complete, to walk with Jesus over here, that's way harder. That takes so much more courage and so much more bravery, yet that's where transformation happens. That's where you find hope. That's where you find healing. Right here, not in the slums. And yet, we live here saying, this is it. And we even come to a conclusion, and we make this shift, uh, shift in attitude like this. Maybe we even realize there is a paradise. Maybe, maybe we do realize that there is, uh, you know, a day at the sea. But for some of us, we're like, no, I can't actually get there. I'm not good enough. I haven't made, I'm not holy enough. I haven't made the, the best decisions in my life. I'm not this, I'm not that, I don't look like this, I don't have that, so, so I'm good right here. And I kind of go back to my story with uh, my friend, my driver in Rwanda. If that was me, I would say, you know what, the world is so great, sure, uh, but that's over there. I have lived this life, and I'm stuck with this. And I'm just going to live in bitterness and pain and loss and sorrow because that's my experience. I'm not going to move over there. And for some of us, that's where we're at. For some reason, we put up this false wall of impossibility all over the place. And we're saying, you know what? That I, this is where I live. I can't really go over there. I can't for whatever reason that you have. And what God is saying, I, I'm, what God is saying, I'm going to break down that false wall of, of impossibility because I have so much for you. And, and in this culture, especially today, we need to hear this message Loud and clear. A few days ago, you know, I had this routine where I'll, I'll wake up and then I'll just kind of scroll through the news. Uh, and to me, this was, this was big news, uh, heartbreaking news, is that uh, one of my, I guess, influences as being a self-proclaimed foodie uh, and traveler was that this man, Anthony Bourdain, had died. 
And Anthony Bourdain is someone who I've actually followed for, for many years. And people often ask me this, Prentice, if, what is your dream job? And I said, my dream job is to be a pastor at Bethany Community Church uh, in West Seattle. Like, great, great answer. Like, I got my dream job. Well, then, what, if you weren't doing that, what would you, what would you do? What would you be? Uh, and I say every time that I w- what, what Anthony Bourdain is doing, that's, that's what I would do. Uh, because what he has brought to the table is connection uh, through the vehicle of food. And so uh, the vehicle of food to him transcended any barrier or, or any differences that cultures may have. And he would bring people together and he would understand people's stories through the vehicle of food. And, and so I've adopted that. And, and, and he was kind of my hero in terms of how to do that well. And I started reading that story of Anthony Bourdain. And, and then I, I see that the way he died uh, was that he took his own life. And here's this man who I kind of wanted to be, who I envied, but obviously I didn't know, and I didn't know his story, I didn't know what he was going through. This man that I thought was living the life wasn't. And he took his own life. And even a few days before that, I don't know much about uh, Kate Spade. Uh, she did the same thing. And even a week before that, I was walking alongside some friends who lost their son exactly one year ago at that day uh, from suicide. At 11 years old, at 11 years old. And so here are these stories who I think have it all, who have lived a good life. Here's an 11-year-old who really know. I mean, how does an 11-year-old know that he's reached the end of his rope? I, I don't know. But what we've seen is that people live in this sense of despair, that there's nothing left for them except for this village or you know, in the slum making mud pies when God is saying there's so much more. And yet, there's so many people out there, including ourselves, including the people around us that live in this space, so much so that people are willing to take their own life because life is not worth living. And I want to tell you, and the encouragement is this, that wherever you might be in your story, whether it's a painful narrative, whether it's joyful, whether you think you have it all, God has so much more for you. And so, so my encouragement, my hope, and my challenge is that you would let go. You would actually let go of what you think brings you life that you would let go of the walls of impossibilities, whatever that might be for you. I mean, we see so many walls of impossibilities, whether even it's in our own culture, in our own society. We see systemic racism. Will that ever get better? We see pain and loss. Will that ever get better? We see division between families and marriages and friendships. Will that ever get better? We see homelessness and issues with refugees and, and we see immigrants and we see all these problems and we ask ourselves, will this ever get any better, whether it's in my life or in your life or in our city or in our country? And the answer that I believe that God has is yes. The answer is yes. Through Jesus, we no longer have to live here in the slums, playing with mud pies. When Jesus says there's so much more, don't give up, stick with it. 
And I say this over and over and over again, all time in several of my sermons, that we believe that when God is writing our story, that God uses a period. When the reality is, when God is writing our story, God doesn't use a period, God uses a comma. Because it's continuing to unfold, and yet we don't know it, but may we trust and may we have faith that as long as we surrender our mud pies in the slums, that God moves us to joy and healing and, and, and more, and so much more that we can ever ask or imagine. And I'm just going to leave you guys with this. How does that happen? It's this third movement. First, we see a movement from mystery to revelation. And when we understand the movement to, to, from mystery to revelation, we can move then from the slum to sea. But the way that, that happens is we must move from information to intimacy. In Ephesians 3.18, it says this, I pray that you may have the power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. I love this verse. It says, uh, uh, may you have the power to comprehend uh, or, or some translations will say the power to grasp and in this understanding of comprehend or to grasp, it doesn't mean just to cognitively understand or to be able to recite like the Bible or whatever it is. It's this Greek word kataplamo. Kataplamo is actually a better translation would be to feel, like, to feel overtaken. And sometimes it's used as ambush, like just completely overtaken. May we feel so just overtaken by the deep and profound love that God has for us, that being overtaken, we build intimacy. We invite that to build a relationship and to know, not just know about, but to know Christ and to be deeply rooted and grounded in him, that changes everything. Be rooted and grounded in Christ. Move from information to intimacy. Because God gives us the power to do that. And, and I love this word power. It comes from the word dunamai, which we get the word dynamite. It's powerful. It's explosive. May we be overwhelmed by the love of Christ in your life. And it's that power that you can achieve anything more than you ever ask or imagine. But surrender. Stop trying to do it on your own because the secret is out. You can't. And so I'm going to invite the worship team back up as we, as we respond. And may this, maybe it's this minute right here when we respond, maybe through music, maybe through reflection or meditation, that we finally enter into a moment of just letting go of surrendering our mud pies because we believe and understand that God has more for us. May we experience a movement today, right now, from sorrow to joy. May we experience a movement from hopelessness to expectation, 
from mourning to dancing, from anger to love, from sickness to healing. God is here. You are loved deeply and profoundly and believing and grasping onto that, may we break down any imaginary walls of impossibilities. Whatever you believe that impossibility is, God has something so much more for you. And so you can respond through song, meditation. There's prayer books. We pray over those books. And there's, there's something that you can't like, God, I can't get out of this rut. This is where I'm living and I don't want to be. Will you just give that up? You can write it down. We'll have, we'll have even prayer uh, partners with us. And so we we'll just be reflecting on what that means. Let me pray. God, thank you. That out of death, you bring out new life. So God, I pray for my friends. I pray for myself. And when we enter into seasons uh, of impossibilities, this idea, this notion that we can't, move over from the slums, the mud pies, uh, to the sea. Help us to recognize that. May we believe that you have so much more for us than we can ever ask or imagine. Reveal what those things are and how to pursue that. We thank you. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.